Let's pray again. Our Father, we're grateful for all that you've given us, that you gave us your Son, and in him you gave us unity with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You opened the door again to fellowship, fellowship with you, God. Thank you for that. God, that's so good. And then you gave us, Father, fellowship with one another, connectedness, connection, unity with one another. Father, we praise you for these gifts. We pray as we, again, search your word, uh, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, help us understand, help us know and believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is uh, our third week in this vision series. And uh, you'll remember we're just building on these first two verses in Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful ones in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I want to remind you that we're building a mission statement from these verses, and that mission statement is simply to be who we are, where we are, empowered by the Spirit. And today our focus is that third phrase, empowered by the Spirit. And so that's where we're going to go. So the Holy Spirit is the one who dispenses the graces of God. This uh, greeting of Paul's grace and peace to you from God our Father, uh, it's easy for it to feel like a little bit of just a kind default. You know, it would be something you put in your email signature, so it just shows up every time. You could almost feel like it might not have a lot of intentionality behind it, that it's a courtesy. I have the same um, in my signature. It, it often says, uh, grace and peace, Rick. Uh, and yet I would say, and I'm sure you know this, that it's not in any way a default and it's not a small thing. And it's not simply a formality, but it's actually a significant blessing. Paul, in a sense, is saying this must be said before anything else is said. I would connect it to the reality that we choose often to pray when we get together for almost any reason, simply because we want to make sure that we're drawing on the Holy Spirit that we're acknowledging the fatherhood of God, that we're acknowledging the authority, the kingship of Jesus Christ. So these are words that are very intentional and very weighty as well, even though they're used very consistently. And I would say that that's true again here in Colossians, that these are not simply polite cursory words, but they're very significant. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In the Trinity, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to be the one who dispenses the grace and the peace of God. The Spirit is the one who gives to humans what comes from the Father. Jesus himself did much of this when he was here on earth, and then he left it again to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit, to be the one that would continue advocating and dispensing the goodness and the grace of God to his people. The Holy Spirit is the one who dispenses the graces or grace of God Think of spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts. These are qualities that God gives to his people, and he gives them by the Holy Spirit. I want to remind you, uh, let's turn to John chapter 14, some very critical things that Jesus said to his disciples in that final night that they had together before his trial, betrayal, crucifixion. 
he was explaining this exchange of roles that he would be stepping out of the role as the one who was with them, present with them, dispensing the graces of God through healing and through teaching and giving that role of advocacy and equipping to the spirit of God. And so Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And of course, Jesus is referring to the spirit here because I live, you also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the father and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself again by the Spirit to him. So Jesus is sharing some incredible news here that we are invited into the fellowship of the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And they have always, from before the creation of man, shared a fellowship, a unity, a love between them and among them. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to invite you. I'm inviting you now into this unity with the Father and with me and with the Holy Spirit. This phrase, it goes by so quickly, but it's so critical. And it's such a new moment, a new revelation to say uh, in verse 17, the Spirit You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This in you is so significant. That was not a reality to this point. The spirit would be with someone, giving that person abilities, giftings to prophesy, to build the temple, to do so many things, graces from God to do it well. But here's this statement where Jesus says, the spirit will be in you. It's so significant. And notice that the dominant theme around all of this is this theme of love, which is so unique to me in so much of my theological training and in a lot of the studying that I've done and conversations I have. It now is odd to me how little we talk about love in those contexts. We seem to talk in contexts of truth and reality and sacredness and holiness. And yet the dominant characteristic in this statement of Jesus is love the love of the Father for the Son and for the Spirit. And if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the the atmosphere in the fellowship of the Trinity is this reality of love. And we must keep that in mind. We are welcomed into the fellowship of the Trinity and the most basic quality among the Trinity is love. Uh, One place where Paul works hard to make this very clear is in 1 Corinthians. So Paul, near the end of his letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, launches into this teaching on the the Holy Spirit, the fact that the unity of the church is achieved through the one Spirit of God, and that that same Spirit gives or disperses or hands out gifts to the people of the church so that they might benefit each other, they might bless each other. And then halfway through that, because in our Bible it's chapters 12, 13, and 14, halfway through this explanation of how to engage the gifts of the spirit in worship. He says, wait a minute, let's take a time out. I need to clarify something that's very, very important. And that is what we call chapter 13. And so I want to read that for you and remind you. Uh, 
And again, this is all around the reality of the Holy Spirit. He says, um, 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the languages of men and of angels, that's a gift of the Spirit, but I have no love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, things that don't communicate anything specific, just noise. And if I have prophetic gifts, again, graces of the Holy Spirit, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, the very thing Paul prayed for that by the Spirit the Colossians would have. And if I have faith, another gift of the Spirit, so strong that I can remove mountains, complete faith, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, again, the grace of generosity and of giving, gifts of the Spirit, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, complete sacrifice, but I have no love, I have gained nothing. Paul is wanting to drive this point home to this church that actually is quite involved in the gifts of the Spirit and let them know all of this must come from and move toward the context of love. That is the point. If love is not the motivation and if love is not the experience, then it's, it's nullified. It's empty. It shouldn't even happen. That's how critical love is. And as you know, Paul will continue to wrestle with the Corinthians because they will greatly enjoy these gifts. And they will even talk about some having greater gifts and lesser gifts. And there will be pride that will come into the, into the, uh, the church over the gifts. And Paul is working so hard to fight against this. He goes on to say quite specifically, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast the very thing that they will do with the spiritual gifts. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist in its own way and is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice with wrongs, but only with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Paul, as a father to the Corinthian church, wanted to make it so clear. Love must be the motivation and must be the experience. He goes on to say, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for languages, they will also stop. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And there I think he's characterizing the childishness of what can be done with gifts of the Spirit. But instead, he wants to be a mature man of love. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will be fully known, even as I am known. I will fully know, even as I am fully known. And then he has this wonderful phrase at the very end of this chapter. So now, faith, hope, and love. These three abide, but the greatest of these is love. I hope you notice, you'll, it'll be pointed out for sure next week, Daniel will get to it as we get into Colossians 1 verses 3 and 5, finally, and Paul will talk about these three great qualities or realities once again. Verses 3, 4, and 5 of Colossians say this, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven for you. And there are those three things that he says are permanent. Faith in Jesus, love for one another, and hope in the promise of heaven. Paul has these things in his mind all of the time. Back in the uh, 80s, so yeah, long time ago, I was at Multnomah School of the Bible. 
and I was uh, studying so that I might be a more proficient and a more equipped pastor. And uh, so I was in pastoral studies. I was majoring in theology and the Bible, and I was minoring in pastoral studies. And we had a, a, a workshop one day with a man named Jim Lincoln. I ran into Jim actually, by the way, about three years ago. And of course, many years ago, um, when I first met him, it was very many years ago when I first met him. Um, and actually there's a small church out on Lad Hill. I don't know if any of you have driven out that far on Lad Hill, but if you drive out all the way almost to Wilsonville Road, there's a white church out there, a small white church. Jim pastored in that church for many years. I didn't know that about him. We had met at a coffee shop and we caught up, but I've been reminded often of Jim. And one thing that Jim said to us that, um, really caught my attention. It was so radical to me because we were in this environment where we were learning kind of the technicalities of pastoring, you know, all the cool stuff, all the inside stuff. And there was a lot of that mindset and a lot of that attitude going around. And Jim sat us down and we were all ready and we had our notepads out. And the first thing Jim said to us, he said, men, this is the question that you need to ask yourself Whenever you graduate and you come to that first opportunity to pastor a church, this is the most important question. And we were poised and ready with our pens. And he said, the question you need to ask is, can I love these people? I was so surprised by that. It just seemed to come out of left field. And I put my pen down because it hit my heart instead of my head. And I realized my head was really engaged in my studies. And so much of what we were learning and the conversations we were having were very heady and in my head. But Jim spoke directly to my heart. Can I love these people? And I have never forgotten that. It was such a challenge from God to say, don't take up a mantle of leadership unless you can answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, I can love these people. And it really is consistent with the spirit of God. Uh, you think of the uh, the writings of Jesus in uh, Revelation 1 through 3 to the churches. And he said to the Ephesians, you've done so many wonderful things, but I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. Again, the importance of love. Jesus goes on in those verses in John to talk about what he's doing. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you to live. Jesus has been sent by the Father to create a home and to bring humanity back home. God created a home in the Garden of Eden. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It was comfortable. It was well provided for. And it was a home, a home where man would live, men and women together, and God would come and visit. It was essentially human home, and God would come to that home. The Spirit of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would come to that home and be with us. And we know the story. And that was broken. Jesus came to take us back home, to qualify us to come home again. And he's saying here on this last night with his disciples, I'm going to go back to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you. We discover as we go further into the resurrected Jesus and then the teachings of Paul, that in a sense, God has actually asked us to prepare a home for him as well. And that home is the Holy Spirit. 
Again, for the first time in human history, the Spirit is given not just as one who comes alongside and works with humans, but actually comes to live inside humans, to be within us. And so the home of God by the Holy Spirit is humans, humanity, the church as it gathers. This is the home of God. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, in some sense, he's reflecting all of that reality. May God be at home in your hearts. May the provisions of God be among you as a community. May you be full of the graces, the gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, and may peace reign where you are. Such an incredible blessing with so much to it. I want to lay that foundation a little better. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So not only is God among us as we gather in Jesus' name, but we actually as individual women and men, daughters and sons of God, are also homes for God himself by the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons this is such tremendously good news for us is because God has called us to do something humanly impossible. We're told to be who we are, where we are, but the who we are is saints, faithful ones in Christ, women and men who carry on the image of God as Jesus did, bearing the redeemed Imago Dei, the image of God that we were created with. And you and I know that's an impossibility. The entire Jewish experience was primarily for this one purpose of showing us that as humans, we cannot fulfill the call of God. We cannot live in the image of God. Uh, for all have sinned. Everyone falls short of the glory of the image of God. Jesus even said elsewhere in the book of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we know this is still true. We've been called to something incredible. We desire it. We want to do it. We want to obey. We want to love. We want to fulfill the teachings of Jesus. And yet it is humanly difficult and humanly impossible. And the answer, the answer, the answer to that impossibility is the Holy Spirit. I would suggest to you that this is one of the great weaknesses of the church in recent decades and centuries is the lack of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I don't know where it happened. I don't know what went wrong, but somewhere we let go of this priority, this necessity, this, this something that must happen. Otherwise it's impossible. This filling of the Holy Spirit. How can we expect to be saints and faithful and perfect as our heavenly father is perfect apart from the constant strengthening and enabling of God's Holy Spirit. It's the only way that it can happen. I believe a piece of the reality of why the Holy Spirit is not as experienced as, as God would desire that it is, is because of this reality that the Holy Spirit can only live in holy places. The scriptures teach us that it's up to us to create a holy place for the spirit of God to live, that the temple of this body would be a holy place. Paul talks about the reality that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can quench the Holy Spirit 
And I believe that we do that consistently and we do that often, both individually and as the church. And I think we do it without a sense of knowing that we are. We're simply living our lives. We're simply living day to day and perhaps reacting to uh, our circumstances and what goes on around us. And we don't really fully understand this responsibility that we have to maintain a sense of inner holiness so that the Holy Spirit will not be grieved and will not be uh, quenched, but will be free to live fully in us. Again, the beauty here, that's not, that's not a work. That's not something, it's not keeping our plate or our slate clean by perfect behavior, perfect morality. That's not, that doesn't work. We already know that according to the original covenant. It's the work of Jesus, the ongoing work of Jesus that enables us to maintain a holy space within our spirits so that the Holy Spirit can remain there. Daniel mentioned at the top of uh, our gathering that today is a special day, and that special day is what is being called uh, Repentance Sunday. In July, several churches, about 50 church leaders from around the country got together, and they began praying and asking together, what should be the response of the corporate church in America? How do we respond to the challenges of these waves of difficulty from COVID to racial reconciliation to fires, you know, what's happening? It feels like plagues. It feels like layers. Is there a right response here? And in that praying and fasting, what they concluded together was that God is calling us to repent. He's calling us as a nation, as a national church, as the church of Jesus Christ in this country to repent and to call on God for revival. And this is a pattern in the scriptures. We see God does this, that when times are very difficult, it's the right time for us to humble ourselves and to examine ourselves as a nation, as a church, as families, as individuals, and ask, how is the residence of the Holy Spirit been made unholy? What do I need to repent of so that the fullness of the Spirit can return? And when the fullness of the Spirit is present in individuals and communities and churches, most often the table is set for revival, for the church to come alive again, and for the church to be the powerful witness that God has called it to be again. And this is where we sit today. And so we've chosen to join that roster of hundreds of churches and to say, yeah, we will acknowledge today as Repentance Sunday. And we will take the time to pray, to humble ourselves and pray. I want to do this with you right now uh, on a larger level, just as one of your leaders and pray on your behalf as a church for both repentance and revival. So I'll give you a minute to kind of get situated there and let's just take a breath and acknowledge the presence of God and join me to the degree that you find that you can say yes and amen to what I pray. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we agree with Jesus who said that apart from him, we are not able. And Father, I confess that we are not even able to identify what we have done that has caused grief, that has quenched your spirit. But we know, Father, we know that we have sinned. We know that we're incomplete. So God, I just begin confessing to you an over-occupation with ourselves. 
We praise you for the democracy that we were born into, but we know in that democracy, Father, it's so easy to create a million small kingdoms around ourselves. And I confess, Father, that I, I have withdrawn into my own kingdom, making a priority of the needs that I have and that my family has. And I confess that to you, Father, and I ask you to forgive me for not considering the other and especially the oppressed, the orphan and the widow, the disadvantaged and the underserved. Father, we confess a lack of awareness to the realities that go on around us, the suffering that is nearby and that is far away, but still within our reach and still our responsibility. We confess, God, our inattentiveness to black lives, our inattentiveness to immigrants, to those that struggle. God, we confess not paying attention to what you asked us very clearly to pay attention to. Forgive us, God, forgive us as a nation. Father, you declared a day of atonement for unconscious or unknown sin. And we confess to you that we don't even know the ways in which we fail to love. But Father, whatever you see in us, whatever you see in our neighborhoods, whatever you see in our church, whatever you see in our state and in our country, please forgive. We ask you, Father, bring conviction, deliver us from guessing or assuming where we failed. But Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you speak to us as individual people and as a nation where we have sinned, where we are failing to love? Holy Spirit, we need you. We need your conviction. Please don't leave us to ourselves. Show us, oh God, where we need to repent, where we need to ask your forgiveness, where we need to agree with you that we have failed. And we praise you, God, that in our admission and in our confession, there's forgiveness and there is freedom moving forward. And we ask you, Jesus, as we are set free from sin, that you would empower us as a church and as individual saints, empower us with the spirit, bring us alive again as people, your people, Yahweh, Bring us alive again as the church. Let us take the place of representing the Trinity well, representing Jesus well, representing the Father well. Let your church rise up in this time where everyone is looking for hope and leadership and a promise of something better. Father, we ask you to make the promises that you made again through your church. Give leadership, wisdom, humility, creativity, sacrifice. Jesus, draw out of your people, draw out of us a spirit of sacrifice, a spirit of open hands and open hearts. God, we would love for you to spend us on others, to let us be your witnesses where we are. Open our eyes, forgive us, and revive us, we pray. Revive your church. Father, revive the church of your son. Jesus, make us beautiful again. Make us beautiful to the world.
We long to be the church that you deserve, Lord Jesus. Make us such a church. Make us such a people, we pray. To the glory of the Father and in the name of Jesus. Amen.